Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David, David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took, off, took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and the wild animals of the earth so that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by the sword and the spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The troops of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaharim as far as Gath and Ekron. The Philistines came back from chasing the, the Israelites came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, "Abner, whose son is this young man?" Abner said, "As your soul lives, O king, I do not know." The king said, inquire whose son the, stri the stripling is. On David's return from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. With the head of the Philistine in his hand, Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Thanks, Anthony. We have got this great iconic story of David and Goliath that we get to go through this morning. We're gonna talk about courage, we're gonna talk about fear, we're gonna talk about liturgy and daily routines and, and hopefully on a positive, courageous note. So first I'd like to pray and then we'll get into it. God, we thank you for this story, for these people, for your word and that we can learn so many things about you and your presence with us. Just guide us this morning as we spend the next 20 minutes or so um, thinking through this story. Amen. So if you've not heard this 
particular story, you've definitely heard this storyline because it is the storyline in so many books and movies, particularly like sports movies it feels like, we really like an underdog story, the little guy kind of sticking it to the bad guy. Bad guy, sorry, or bad woman, <laughs> it's fine. One of my favorite underdog stories, just kind of gets thinking about this, is in the movie Cool Runnings. Who's seen Cool Runnings? It's like the best movie. The Jamaican bobsled team shows up in the middle of Canada for the Winter Olympics, and they are really underprepared. They've got crappy equipment. They've got really bad, like, outerwear. There's, I love this scene where they're in the airport, and the guy, one of the bobsledders, he goes outside, and then he comes back inside, and he takes all of the clothing that's in his duffel bag, puts it on, and then puts, like, the duffel bag on over top because he is so cold. I just love the, the story. We all love the story of an underdog. So our question this morning, we're thinking about courage, our question we're going to come back to is this. How do we live a life of courage? How does David portray courage in this story? What is any? If you're reading the bark of the bog owl along with us, there's a really good quote, there's a really good definition of courage that kind of gets us started thinking about courage, and it says this. Courage is the will to lay aside fear because your desire to do right outweighs your desire to avoid getting hurt. Now, the first thing I notice in this definition is this interesting relationship with fear. Can we have courage without fear? How do we kind of move through fear? What do we think about fear? For me, fear is highly motivating. There are things that I do because I'm afraid of something happening or things I don't do because I'm afraid of something happening. One of those instances for me is I'm a big door locker. Like, I'm constantly locking the doors to our house. If I'm leaving, I, I often have to, like, go double-check to make sure my door's locked in the morning. That and unplugging my curling iron for some reason, I don't know. I'm always thinking I leave that thing plugged in. So constantly locking doors. If I'm working alone at the offices, door is usually locked. And it's because it kind of stems from this incident that happened when I was a kid when we had an intruder come into our house through an unlocked back door. And so that's kind of a fear response in me, and it motivates me to constantly lock my doors. Like, but to a detriment, a few months ago I went for a run, and I got back to the house, and I was locked out. I thought I'd left a door unlocked, but it's a habit. I lock all my doors, so I thought, okay, good, we've got a garage, little garage code. So I'm plugging it in, plugging in the numbers. I can't remember it. So I call Scott, he's not answering. And I remember that several weeks before, I, I thought Scott had maybe given our code to our neighbors so they could watch our house when we were gone. And so I was so embarrassed. I had to walk over to my neighbor's house. He's in his yard. I'm like, hey, how's it going? Went, hey, do you have my garage code? I kind of locked out. He's like, you don't know your own garage code? I'm like, no, I, I do, but I don't. So he did have it, um, and I was one number off. It was real frustrating. So fear is highly motivating. If you look out like in society as you're moving through your everyday life, look at like headlines or speeches from public leaders or officials. There are interesting ways that fear can be used to motivate us to kind of do something or not do something. Let's keep going through. In our book, in The Bark of the Bog Owl, he touches on fear in a really interesting way. This quote says, you felt fear, but you didn't act out of fear. You acted out of courage. 
Dobro was fearless, but you were courageous, which is a much better thing to be. So if we're called to move aside fear or lay aside fear and be courageous, what is fear? How do we think more intentionally about fear? Um, about a decade ago, I learned about this man who his name is Gavin De Becker, and he is our kind of one of our leading experts apparently in the nation on security and violent threat assessment. And so he's worked with a variety of public figures like Jeff Bezos and Oprah on their security teams. He's worked with like three different presidents, all the way down to like state and local police departments. And he's created this threat assessment to better identify or predict violent events. And in his book, The Gift of Fear, he talks about how this kind of gut fear that we get sometimes, we have this feeling in our gut to be afraid. He talks about how we can use that fear to better understand the threat or what's happening around us based on our situation. So I learned a fun fact this week. Did you know that your gut has over 100 million nerve cells in it? There's so many nerve cells that the scientists sometimes call your gut your second brain because it's communicating things to you. And what this book does and what Gavin helps to do so well is, is kind of understand when you're feeling fear and then be able to point to specific things around us in this situation to kind of bring that gut feeling to more of the front of your, your mental processing or more of like your conscious thinking. So what he talks about in the book is these things called pre-incident indicators that are events or techniques that other people can use to kind of um, maybe get you to do something you don't want to do. So for example, we're going to go through a little thought exercise to kind of think about this. We're going to pretend like I'm the bad gal, okay? <laughs> now I'm really overthinking everything. <laughs> I am the, the bad person. And I meet you on the street, and you don't know this, but my intent is to rob you, and I'm going to take your wallet. Which <laughs> I would never do. It's so funny. Um, I would never do this, so don't worry. Um, but for this exercise, I'm the bad person. And so I might say something like, hey, do you see that storm coming? We need to get inside. We don't want to mess up our hair, right? We're looking good. We don't want to mess up our hair today. Um, or maybe you need to go somewhere. Well, we can give you a ride. We can go. We'll figure this out together. Do you see what I did? Just by using language, I made you think that for whatever reason, we are on the same team and now we have this common goal to get you to do something I want you to do without telling you what I want you to do, which is to get you to a second location so I can take your wallet. So he kind of goes through all these different things like that. And if you're interested, I just typed him into my podcast app and he's got a ton of interviews. Um, if you do listen, I'd love to chat with you because I found it really interesting. So he has this quote, we'll kind of wrap up our fear conversation. We went from cool runnings to fear. I'm real sorry, we just, we're all over the place. So he writes this, only human beings can look directly at something, have all the information they need to make an accurate prediction, perhaps even momentarily make the accurate prediction, and then say it isn't so. So we're gonna, transition a bit to this theme of courage that's found in our text that Anthony read. So I'm going to go through a couple verses and just highlight um, a few things that I found interesting. So in verse 38 and 39, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. 
David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk. He was not used to them. David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these. I am not used to them, so he removed them. To me, this really highlights David's underdog status. Maybe he's small in stature. We know Saul was a really big guy. He is not experienced as a soldier at all here. He is so uncomfortable, um, and so he's a lot more comfortable with using his own weapons. It just really highlights his inexperience on the battlefield here. We're going to keep going. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, he's talking to Goliath, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I think this verse and this whole story of David Goliath in general really highlights like the peak of David's character. It's like pinnacle David, because if, if you know the rest of his story, there's some really terrible things that he orchestrates, but this right here is like his peak commitment to God, his trust that God has prepared him for this task at hand with the tools he has. In verse 47, the Lord does not save, David's continuing to talk to Goliath, the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Again, just this confidence, this commitment to God's provision for him. And in verse 50, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. So what David said in the previous verse that we went through came true. He killed this Philistine just with his sling and stone, and there was no sword in his hand. So back to our question this morning, how do we live a life of courage How do we go about doing this? What is helpful from this story? And also, what's been left out of this story? What are some things that we don't read about in this account? Tish Harrison Warren is an Anglican priest, and she wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. And basically, she goes through how we can become aware of God's presence as we're moving through our everyday lives and routines. She writes, the crucible of our formation is in the anonymous monotony of our daily routines. What if the boring parts of our life matter to God too? What if he cares about those seemingly boring, insignificant moments. So each chapter of this book is titled to something that we do every day, like wake up, brush our teeth, make our bed, drink tea, calling a friend, checking email, that sort of thing. And my favorite chapter was titled Making the Bed, Liturgy, Ritual, and What Forms a Life. So I'm not a morning person, um, but I think there's something about being very intentional in those first kind of moments or maybe even hour of my day that I know for me how I spend that hour or half hour does really kind of set the tone for the rest of my day. So I'm not a morning person and I'm not perfect at this routine, but I really try to have some intentional time in the morning. So in this chapter, Tish was talking about kind of how her morning routine had become very consumeristic. After waking up, she would get on her phone uh, and look at Instagram or TikTok or whatever it was, and she realized the first moments of her day were spent being a consumer. 
And so instead, she shifted to this idea of making her bed, um, which allowed her to be a collaborator with God. So what that means is she would take this little section of her home, her bed, and, and create order out of chaos. Very similar, very reminiscent of the creation account where God creates order out of chaos. And just that would set the tone or frame the rest of her day. So me, I'm not a bed maker. I personally don't get the point because I'm just gonna get back in it that evening. So I don't wanna make, unmake, make, and unmake a bed. But for me, I have my own little kind of ritual that I do in the morning. Um, and again, I'm not a morning person. So this has to be very ridiculously comfortable for me to do this. So I get up, I make my smoothie, my coffee, and my tea. Sometimes I have water, so I'm a little ridiculous. And I've got this end table right next to this comfortable chair. And so I've got a blanket and I've got this like prayer shawl a friend gave me and I've got a pillow and I've got my hydration station and I've got my plants and I've got my books and it's a whole thing and I settle in and I'll poor Scott has to deal with my ritual every morning sometimes he goes to work early and you don't have to deal with it but okay my little ritual and then I settle in do my thing whatever that looks like for the morning and then when I get up I make sure this corner of the house is just organized, blankets folded, plants organized, books stacked. And that for me is how I've kind of taken, taken this idea and put it into something that works for me. I kind of create order out of this little chaotic corner and go about my day thinking that I can be like a collaborator with God. I can be his presence in the world. And so this book is just all kind of different ways and things that you can use to, as you go about your day to notice God's presence. Dallas Willard writes, where transformation is actually carried out is in our real life, where we dwell with God and our neighbors. So what does this have to do with David? Well, what's not in the David story? What's not in this story that we read this morning? We don't read about these boring, mundane, kind of everyday moments that David would have. He would have to wake up, maybe brush his teeth or eat breakfast. He'd have to walk to the pasture, find the sheep. I don't, you know, did one get lost in the night? I don't know. He didn't buy that slingshot. So he had to find it or make it or fashion it. And then we know that he was taking out lions and bears. You can't tell me he woke up one morning and just did that. He had to put in hours and hours and days of practice. And then too, we don't really know anything about his like spiritual practices because in this story, there's a firm, very apparent commitment to God and his will for him. But we don't read about any of those kind of little mundane moments that would have added up to prepare him for this really big moment. And so for us, we don't know what battles the future holds. We don't know what's gonna happen this afternoon or tomorrow or next month, despite our best efforts sometimes to control. But we do know the task at hand. I was recently reminded of the importance of acting as if I believe my beliefs are true. We read this in the story. David acted as if God's provisions were for him were true. We've read that today. And so I was reminded of this, you know, importance of believing, believing what I believe to be true and acting it out. So I was in Big Sandy. Scott and I were in Big Sandy a few weeks ago. We took some friends up to go hunting. 
which I'm not a hunter, but you can hunt, do your thing. I was inside playing with kiddos. And in Big Sandy, we've got a niece, Emily, who is four and a half, a nephew who is almost four, his name's Levi, and then a little year and a half old nephew, Andrew. And so I was playing with Emily and Levi, the two older kiddos. They're about six months apart. They're cousins, so they're playing all the time. I'm playing with them. We're building Legos, whatever. And I sense a little bit of a shift in the, the tone of our little play date here. Um, they start to get a little bit more annoyed with each other and anxious with each other and, you know, very insistent that they're playing wrong and I'm playing right. So I do what any good aunt would do in this situation. I got up and left because <laughs> I am the aunt. I'm not going to deal with a four-year-old uh, argument here. So I left, I go to the kitchen, and sure enough, I'm in the kitchen, and I can hear these little voices getting louder and louder in the living room. And I'm like, whew, good good one. You got out of there real quick, good job. Until I hear my name. And I was like, oh no, did I say something? What did I do? So before I tell you the next part, you have to know if I'm the favorite aunt, this side of the family, I'm the favorite aunt. Scott's the favorite uncle, which you could have guessed pretty easily, but I'm the favorite aunt. And so I hear their peak argument in the living room, and I'm listening in, and I hear Emily, her niece, yelling at Levi, and she's saying, Hannah is not your aunt. She's just my aunt, not yours anymore. (laughs) And so this is too much for poor Levi. This is the straw that broke the camel's back in this argument. He's crying, screaming, and he runs into the kitchen and finds his mom, who's very oblivious to to what has been happening in the living room. I'm laughing in the corner. And so his, you know, through tears and snot, he is crying, he tells his mom, Emily says that Hannah's not my aunt anymore, but I think she's my aunt, I, right? Is she still my aunt? And so his mom kind of gets down and she says, hey buddy, Emily's not the decider of who gets to be whose aunt. She kind of explained how family structure works, right? And then she said something really important. She said, hey, you know the truth. So I want you to go back into the living room and you act like what you know to be true is true. You know the truth, act like it. And I thought, oh, that's really good advice. Not just for four-year-old arguments, but for life in general. Do I act as if I believe what is true? Do I act in a way that is consistent with what I believe to be true? One of the truths that I'm finding just really apparent in text and in my quiet times is God's desire to be with us and God's desire to be present with us. It's all throughout the text. And one of my favorite examples comes to us in Psalm 23, written by David. Scholars think it was written kind of towards the end of his kingship. And I think there's something really important in verse four that I want to talk about. But Psalm 23, four says this. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So maybe the task at hand is walking through our darkest valley. Maybe the task at hand is a mundane, kind of nine to five routine. Maybe the task at hand is exciting or happy or joyous. No matter what the task is, we are called to lay aside fear. We will not fear because God is with us. 
We can find comfort in God. We can find courage in God's presence and his desire to be with us. So we're wrapping up this series on the bark of the bog owl in this section of David's life. And in the first week, we asked the question, or we, we kind of had a message around the statement, living the life that unfolds before you. And I think courage is just that. I think living a life of courage is living the life that unfolds before you. Whatever the task, whatever moment, wherever we're at in our life, um, what would it look like to just do the task in front of us, knowing and believing that God is present with us no matter what that situation is. We're gonna give you a chance to take in communi- partake in communion, which has become one of my um, favorite kind of rituals and practices. I think because it's weekly, it's such a tangible reminder for me of God's desire to be with us so much that he became human and walked around as a human and and died for us. So band, you can come up. Ushers, if you want to get ready, you can do that now. So if you've not taken communion with us before, there's bread over here. There's gluten-free option. There's wine and juice over here. We're going to usher you out row by row and then just hang on to your elements. And then Anthony Anthony and I will get back up and we'll lead you through communion together. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of presence, that you desire to be with us and dwell within us. We thank you for your presence today and ask that you are present in the bread and wine in mysterious ways. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.